0: Last time on UnPrisoned. I did a lot of stealing, rigging and entering
1: in people's homes. You're how old? Eight, nine, going on 10.
0: They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to
1: heal. What you show a kid reflects how you think about them. So if they're growing up in blight and they don't have access to healthy foods, that's how they're gonna feel about themselves for the most part, and that's how they're gonna treat us.
2: You know, when you hear people, "Where, where are the parents? They're often working three jobs. Like, that's where they are, trying to survive in what is a very difficult economic environment
0: for some people. We had career day, so I came dressed like I was going fishing. When I got in the classroom, the lady, Ms. Pitts, she said, you do know when you come dressed for career day, you come dressed in a suit, shirt and pants, and a tie. And uh, class kind of chuckled a little bit, you know. This is when I started cutting class. I left and uh, hooked up with some guys that was fishing or rigging in houses. Children grow up and do what their world shows them. I'm Eve Abrams. You're listening to Unprisoned. Those were excerpts from The Myth of the Super-Predator, which tells the story of Joelle Ware, who served time in a juvenile facility for crimes he committed several decades ago as a teenager. Following the documentary's live premiere, a panel of juvenile justice experts discussed the Super-Predator myth and alternative ways to think about juvenile justice. Here are highlights from that discussion, starting with a question from me about how punishment for young people should differ from punishment for adults. Panelist Meredith Engelson, then of the New Orleans Office of the Southern Poverty Law Center, answers first.
3: There are said to be four purposes of punishment. Protecting society, deterring crime, rehabilitating the person who committed the crime, and retribution, making the victim whole. I think when you apply these principles to children, there are definitely different calculations that should be made children change a lot in a short period of time and so the idea of taking them away from their families and from their communities for a long time actually um, is counterproductive often and research has shown that kids do best when they stay in their homes and are treated in their communities rather than being removed from society. However, I do think that rehabilitation is an area that is more relevant for children arguably then for adults, because of young people's capacity for change and their evolving character. And so that's really where the energy should be in terms of intervening. And I think this is why restorative justice is such an important tool, especially in the juvenile justice system. And I'm sure that's something that someone else here can speak more eloquently on than I can. This is Rachel Gassert,
0: the Policy Director of the Louisiana Center for Children's Rights.
4: It should be noted there is nothing rehabilitative about sending a 14-year-old to juvenile prison for a set period of time not to be determined by his progress in rehabilitation. Incarceration, in particular, fails to require a kid to take responsibility or do anything to make it right. In fact, incarceration is a really passive thing. It just requires kids to get through it. And what we really want is something proactive, right? We want kids to engage in that action of accountability. And so a process like restorative justice that Meredith was referring to is a process where a kid who has taken responsibility for a harm that he has caused another person and that person whom he has harmed come together in a facilitated conversation to talk about the impact of the child's actions on that person, and what can be done to make it right, which is something that the person who's harmed has a lot of input in, and that's not what happens in the court system. Here's
0: Ava Rogers, Director for Strategic Partnerships for New Pathways, New Orleans, a nonprofit dedicated to underserved youth.
2: I think that all too often when people hear restorative justice, they think of it as being easy.
0: It's a slap
2: on the wrist when nothing could be further from the truth. Um, you know, true victim-centered restorative justice has been documented in study after study to be more meaningful for victims. And even if you don't believe in any of this you know, value stuff, look at it from a dollars and cents perspective. For three months in 2019, we had roughly 70 kids in the juvenile detention center for property charges. Um, The average length of stay, about 20 days. It costs about $200 a day (laughs) to detain a child. And so you're looking at $280,000 for 70 kids for 20 days. By contrast, people estimate that restorative justice circles cost about $1,000 per participant. And even if you say, okay, well, maybe it costs $2,000, you're looking at half of the amount if you had done restorative justice as opposed to detaining children. The juvenile detention center has a $5 million annual budget. You can't tell me that as a society that that's a wise investment. It doesn't work. Kids still recidivate. Victims don't necessarily get any
0: restitution and it's cost inefficient. This is Sarah Amojula, who was then the director of the Welcoming Project, a youth-centered nonprofit.
1: Um, One of the things that people forget about restorative justice is that it's really hard to look the person whose car you stole in the face and figure out with them how you're going to make it better. At the Welcoming Project, we had to sit with the young person who stole a car and the person whose car he stole, and he just broke down crying and was trying to figure out how he was going to make her life better after he had stolen her car and, and wrecked it. And so when he got out, he was going to get a job and he was going to start helping her pay for this fender. That whole process got something better. She was made whole and things were going to be fixed. And as the kids say, he was actually taking his lick. I think the other thing is at the Welcoming Project, we spent a lot of time uh, focusing on how do you actually support a young person's interests. And that's kind of in Joel's story, the part that made me the angriest was that fisherman story. I got so <laughs> angry because I was like, First off, that's a real career, and secondly, if fishing was the thing that he loved and the thing that probably, if he was doing a lot of fishing, would have kept him out of trouble, why didn't we have someone taking him on a, I don't know anything about fishing, um, taking- On a boat. On a boat? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, like, I don't, I'm sorry. I know nothing about fishing. Um, so, But if he had mentors who were really focusing on doing that with him i think things would have been different just if we even think of the investment to pay for again bait and rods
3: yeah mm-hmm. okay um
1: You're doing great. yeah I'm, I'm doing a good job yeah um you know two hundred dollars might pay for that outing and all of those things and that's made way more difference than him spending even one night in a juvenile justice facility
2: i think that all Too often people kind of get focused on one thing, like, oh, if we could only get those parents right, or, oh, if the schools would only do better. Oh, community, we need more basketball courts, you know, but it's all of the above. Schools, you know, does your school do a good job at just general education, and then in particular, how is your school doing with special education? Because, you know, there's a very high correlation between kids who have special education needs mental behavioral issues both um, at school and in the community. So those are the things that we're talking about. And um, income is a huge mediating factor for a lot of this. You know, you heard in the documentary when Derwin said, well, mom wasn't around because she might be working three jobs. If we pay people a living wage in this city, uh, then we would be making a big start in reducing juvenile crime.
4: We do need to hold our elected officials accountable if we want to achieve those policies because they're the ones that have the power to make those changes. And right now, not all of our elected officials are willing to accept the reality that we shouldn't be throwing children away just because they've done something we don't like.
0: This story was produced by Betsy Shepard. Unprisoned's editors are Vicki Merrick and Katie Rechdahl. Our theme music is by Greg Schatz. Thanks to the George and Joyce Wayne Jazz and Heritage Center for hosting this panel on juvenile justice. Thanks to the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation for supporting season two of Unprisoned. Learn more about the show at Unprisoned.org or www.wno.org, where you can also see Cheryl Gerber's photographs and Merle Cooper's illustrations for this and other episodes. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Eve Abrams. This is Unprisoned.